and welcome to Under the Hood, a brand new podcast from 11FS and Synapse. We're lifting the lid on banking infrastructure and taking you deep into the technology that's disrupting traditional models, shaking up the system, and improving the financial lives of customers around the world. Welcome to episode two of Under the Hood. I'm Simon Taylor, co-founder of 11FS, and I'm joined by my co-host, once again, Sankit Pathak, who's CEO at Synapse. How are you doing, Sankit? I'm doing good. How are you, Simon? Really, really well. Um, remind everybody what Synapse does. Yeah, uh, for sure. Again, um, if you're not aware of us, uh, Synapse is a US-based financial infrastructure company. Um, if you're a developer who wants to launch deposit products or credit products, um, we're by far the fastest way and the most comprehensive way to get to market. So pretty much a developer tool, making it easier for uh, you to launch products for consumers and businesses and banking. Love it, thank you. And in last week's show, we started at the beginning of the journey, looking at the ecosystem as a whole, like how technology is disrupting the whole space, who the actors are, difference between fintech and big tech. Uh, this week, we're getting a little bit more niche and focusing specifically on payments and all of the new innovation that's kind of coming into that space. And my goodness, do we have some excellent guests. Joining us today is probably the OG of payments disruption himself, uh, Nick Ogden, uh, former founder of Worldplay um, and now RTGS global thanks for joining us uh, tell everybody about rtgs global hi simon hi everybody thanks for inviting me on um rtgs global is a new business we set up a couple of years ago and it's really looking at the core of all payments which involves liquidity and ironically if, you, if the liquidity doesn't exist the payment can't flow what we realized i think you probably know i founded a bank in the uk called ClearBank, which is a clearing bank for regulated institutions was that by getting down right into liquidity identification and being able to match it and use atomic settlement processes, we can actually advance all the underlying infrastructure. What that does is delivers a, percolates up a whole raft of benefits for the whole payments infrastructure. So we're working, we've got a network of about, you know, contact database of about 43,000 banks around the world. We're working with regulators in 45 countries. Uh, the network will be going live during the course of 2021. And it's a bank-only network at this stage, so apologies to all the fintechs and all of the, the hate mail I'll get saying, Nick, open it up to us. I know, I know, but we have to go one step at a time in relation to how this works. And it's quite a structural change uh, in the way that, that the whole market operates. Yeah, absolutely is. And I think speaking of uh, fintechs, we don't think you're going to get any hate mail anytime soon, given the, the trail you blazed, quite the opposite. But uh, we're, we're also super happy to be joined by uh, Craig Lewis, who's a founder and CEO of GigWage. Um, can you give us our listeners a quick overview of what GigWage does? Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, our mission is really simple. Um, our goal is to help every company and every platform in the world pay every single contractor alternative worker, gig worker, freelancer, contingent worker, whatever you want to call it. If they don't get taxes taken out of their payment, we want to help you pay them in a modern way. Uh, and so, yeah, we're, you know, a payroll payments and banking platform to do that in a, you know, so people get paid like it's 2021 and not 1981, right? Uh, we think the gig economy in a general sense of the term is the future of how people work. And so we think the infrastructure for paying those people uh, needs to catch up. Here, here. Let's hope it does. Um, and you guys are doing something much needed. So thank you so much for joining us. Payments is arguably the next frontier of innovation and financial services, but we've already seen a lot of payments companies with emerging solutions. So 
Why is it still so ripe for change? What needs shaking up? Sanka, do you want to start us off? Why do you think this is an area that needs change and, and what needs change? So how, how Craig said, like our most of our payment protocols were written in quite an antiquated fashion. Uh, back when, uh, by and large, the compute and protocol capacity was only one way, right? So most of payment protocols only are capable of sending a signal, but not receiving any feedback unless the signal you send fails. And a good comparison between this is uh, when you send a bank-to-bank transfer, you assume the transfer succeeded the next day unless the bank tells you next two or three days that it failed, compared to iMessages where you get it delivered notice that says, okay, this message was received by the receiver, they've seen it in some cases, and so on. Pretty much what we have to do is we have to kind of upgrade not only uh, uh, the initial assumptions of the protocol, but also add kind of these like bi-directional signals into the network so that as consumers and businesses are paying and receiving money, they know at every step of the way exactly what's going on. Um, The second big thing, which again, to Craig's point, the gig wage and the gig economy is picking up quite rapidly. And for anyone who is underbanked or moderately banked, one thing they need is access to their funds as quickly as possible. And today, the payment rails are not set up to be able to do that in a cheap way. You can you can send expensive wires and get people their cash, um, but it, there's no low cost, low latency solution in payments that exists at all. And essentially, the big piece that needs to happen over the course of the next five to ten years, hopefully even sooner, is add the bi-directional communication layer, and second, kind of make it as fast as you can. Obviously, that opens up the can of worms on liquidity, uh, a counterparty risk, and a bunch of these different things uh, that we'll probably dive deep into. But from a consumer's perspective, those are the two pieces that we really need to probably improve, fix, or rebuild as we kind of like modernize the stack across the globe. I love that point, Sankit. And I, I thought about the iMessage or the WhatsApp double take. Like it's so normal for you to know that the message has been received and the message has been seen in real time, and yet you can't have that in payments. And of course, there's now you know Square got really popular with its instant payment mechanism, but people are willing to pay for that. Uh, Craig, talk to me about like in the gig wage, how much like those three dollars can really go a long way for somebody. And actually, getting paid instantly—that's quite a high cost of what they might be making on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, what we found was as we started to kind of gain a little bit of traction in the market, you know, these gig workers are typically low to middle income earners. Obviously, there's all kind of independent workers. You could have six-figure earners, seven-figure earners, but the vast majority of these people are low to middle income earners. What we found was there's a very predatory system out there that exists where you're typically spending two to up, sometimes upwards of 20% of your income just to get your money access to it, sometimes access to it faster. So for us, you know, we tried to think about that and say, well, how do we mitigate some of this risk? And so like even in GigWage, we've built uh, dynamic pricing and, and we try to leverage the data up the stack from the platforms and the companies so that we can drive the cost down, also improve our understanding of like, you know, kind of the KYC side of things. So what we're able to do is say, hey, we can drive because we use volume, we can drive the cost up to the people that they actually do the work for and then build dynamic pricing in so they can split that cost, right? So now instead of spending two to 20%, you know, to make that 150 bucks, 400 bucks, you know, gig wage can get you your money instantly for a dollar or $2, which is really impressive. And people are absolutely willing to pay two to 20% to get their money because it's important. They're ecstatic when they can do it for two bucks, right? And so 
just thinking about, you know, how do you mix and match all of the payment mechanisms to get people their money where they are, uh, when they want it and how they want it. One of the other things we're exploring and we've seen is, you know, this digitization of banking and payments is, you know, what we're built on and excited about, but we still see about $18 trillion in cash being transacted throughout the world. And in the gig economy, it's a big freaking deal. And so now we're even thinking about within our app, how do you enable cash transactions so that people still get a full banking experience? You know, as high tech earners or knowledge workers start to kind of evolve, we can't forget about the vast majority of the world that's still evolving. And so uh, we're looking at all of these things. And the goal is get people their money when they want it, how they want it, where they want it. And there's enough technology out there that you can mix and match and really figure out whether it's a combination of ACH or interchange or same day or next day, however you need to do it, but get them their money. And then, you know, that's where the entrepreneurs have to be innovative and get it to them in a cost-effective manner. Craig, I love that. By understanding what's under the hood, you can actually start to change the business models around a little bit. And that's where the the entrepreneurs are really starting to make that difference. And the other point there, I think you reminded me of Paysafe, who are quite well used across Eastern Europe. They have sort of a barcode feature where you will go to a store, you'll get a barcode, and you can then use that to load up a wallet and use e-commerce. And this is across a lot of um, Latin America. You see this, you see this a lot through Southeast Asia and other parts of the world. That innovation is going to be so crucial for people. Nick, I want to come to you because as our resident payments OG, like unpack what's under the hood in the payments stack for me. People talk about payments rails. They talk about settlement and clearing. What's the, let's zoom in from 101 and, and kind of unpack that. Okay. Let's just jump back a little bit and sort of, you know, how the hell do we get in this mess? Mm-hmm. Uh, because, um, you know, the one question that is asked in every bank, every corner of the world, every day is where is the money? It's a standard question. It's always asked. So how do we get to where we got to? Well, you know, computers arrived in 1974. They replaced telex that the international networks were working on. Um, Swift arrived, CLS Bank arrived, developments occurred. We've had financial crises. We've had the arrival of the commercial internet from 1995. We've had things called search engines, which believe it or not, you don't have to wait 15 minutes for the answer to come back from. You may may have noticed it's quite an interesting and useful feature that they have. But financial service just hasn't caught up with that. And you can turn around and you know, point a lot of blame, but it's the consequence of legacy developments and innovation, which they are saddled with, and then the rate of change which occurs within the fintech environments. And there's a number that's um, interesting. You know, you're talking about $18 trillion uh, of, of cash, Craig. Um, if I told you that we waste $15 trillion a year on financial friction, and that's not my number, that's a number out of the IMF and World Bank in a conversation uh, that we had a year ago, you know, that is the cost of the economy that your gig workers, businesses, and the financial institutions that are meant to be managing this cash you know, uh, are, are saddled with. So how do we try and unravel it? And today, you know, you say you, you, you've got the, the card schemes, you've got the ACH networks, you've got all of the various different systems that operate around the world, all built, as Sankeet pointed out, on the legacy messaging protocols, uh, largely one way, largely requiring secondary messages, you know, hoping that they're going to get through, running through a correspondent banking legacy network, which is not efficient. All right, but is, is where we've arrived at. We started two years ago looking at how you could change that using modern technology. And I'll tell you a funny little story. When, when we were building ClearBank, um, I went to the Bank of England for a meeting 
And they were, we were talking about Clearbank, and they said, where are you going to build this bank, Nick? And I said to them, I said, we're going to build it in the clouds. And they all looked out of the window. This is tr absolutely true, all right? And, and, and I said, no, 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 it's not in that cloud up there. You know, it's, it's actually in the cloud, it's cloud compute. And in 2014, that was right at the cutting edge. You know, Satya Nadella and the guys at Microsoft were just pushing this stuff out. It was re really at the cutting edge. And some of the developments that we can now make in cloud computing transform the way that payment rails will work. And, you know, that coupled with the global pandemic that we're going through has created a consumer demand for change, unlike any that we probably, anybody on this call has experienced. You know, potentially the, the one that was similar was the arrival of the commercial internet when we started to understand that. But what's going on at the moment is a real push right. for customer service, efficiency, transparency, responsibility, and all the, all the rest of it. What that means is that the way that the infrastructure is currently enabled is incorrect. It works, it operates, and it has financial friction. So what we need to do is to stand back from that and say, okay, fine, if we were to start again, all right, which is a brave statement, if we start again, what would we do to change it? Why can Craig not pay a gig economy worker in Sydney, Australia, from Dallas, Texas, in 50 milliseconds, and for that guy to go to an ATM and take the cash out? Well, he can, right? That's what our systems will do and what they will deliver. And so there's a whole change going to be going through over the course of the next five years in, in relation to taking financial friction out and improving the way that, that payments efficiency operate. To get to that, we had to throw away messaging because messaging actually was an obstruction to it because messaging created an operational task. So by throwing that out and having bi-directional messaging and atomic settlement, uh, the network for this is built, uh, it's up and global now, I think we will see some massive changes and they will go all the way down. You know, why can't somebody in a shop who accepts a card payment get paid in by the card scheme before the person actually leaves the shop? Well, they can. The technology to do that exists today. What doesn't exist today is the business process to enable that and ironically, that doesn't impact into Visa and MasterCard or the other card schemes' revenues. Hey, uh, that was a uh, uh, man. Yeah, Nick is an OG for real. That was a great lesson. Uh, learned a lot just in that. Thanks for all, bit, Craig. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, oh no, nah, that's uh, original gangster. Um, you know, I'm a I'm an old uh, I'm an old ADP guy, so I worked at uh, automated data processing, and um, I'll say that without saying anything about them. But the next statement I'll say is, you know, a good uh, acquaintance of mine here in Dallas built a cloud uh, company called Softlayer and he ended up selling it to IBM for a couple billion. And he, then he was the uh, CEO of IBM Cloud for a while. In the last couple of years, IBM, this was astounding to me, had a record-breaking year for mainframe technology. In Just in the last couple of years, like the fact that they are selling more mainframe, maybe not right this moment, but again, in just a matter of recent years, in, in most of these financial institutions, banks, payment companies, they were built on this mainframe technology and they're beholden to it, right? And so that, that's where a lot of the challenge is. So I love what Nick said about, imagine if we were to start fresh, what if we built this new from the ground up? And that's the way it has to be done. And I think that's why a lot of this payment innovation is happening. Yeah, I mean, anybody who's an innovator starts off by just, you know, saying a couple of words, and that's what if. Nick, I actually have a follow-on question for you. Um, 
This future of bi-directional payment protocols, what does this look like to help people visualize this better? Is this still a file transmission protocol? Is this an API call? Is this a socket port? How, how are we thinking about this? Well, it, 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 it's built and operational. Um, it's, uh, it, it uses API. It doesn't use blockchain. Uh, it involves doing um, concurrent processes and lo of looking at available liquidity within counterparty banks. So, that, for example, you know, if Bank of America wants to uh, has a customer who wants to make a payment, you know, a consumer customer wants to make a payment to somebody in Europe, then Bank of America would quite like to know that Socgen in France actually has the money to pay them back for the transaction. And the systems that exist today don't do that. Everybody takes risks. You take settlement risk, you take foreign exchange risk, you take credit risk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the banks are taking this risk. And that's part of the friction I mentioned earlier on. So they don't want to, you know, the first people they're going to protect is themselves rightly because they're protecting their customers' money. So you start to stack all the friction costs back up. But if you start the process back to front, you say, okay, fine, well, you want to make a payment in France. Well, actually, before we do that, we're actually going to make sure you've got money in America. And that might sound quite bizarre, but it's actually quite important for SOCGEN. And so what we're doing is instantaneously, and all of this is atomic, it's occurring in around 50 milliseconds, as we're looking at the Federal Reserve balances that Bank of America has and confirming that it's got $10,000 for the transaction that a customer wants to do. And we lock it, and that's done in 50 milliseconds. And concurrently with that, what we're doing is we're looking at SOCGEN in France and saying, do you have, you know, just use one-to-one -one for the exchange rate, simpler. Do you have 10,000 euros that you're prepared to flog to um, Bank of America for an onward payment to one of their customers in Paris? Answer yes, we lock that cash. The customer um, in America gets presented with the cost of the transaction, the FX, any other costs that are required. And ironically, the company in America, the consumer in America, actually wants to send 10,000 euros. He doesn't want to send 9,876. And then the person he's sending the money to thinks he's been shortchanged. So all of that calculation runs back through. He accepts the transaction, presses yes, and we create a thing called a liquidity block. And it's not blockchain. What it is, it's blocking the liquidity on both sides of the transaction and simultaneously changing the ownership of those funds in central bank money. So it's done. All right. If you then say, OK, fine, that's great. And any bank can use that for any service. So securities, derivatives, foreign exchange payments, domestic payments. It's the same process of you working with the core liquidity, which is what underpins their balance sheet. What you then do is you say, okay, how, how do we then take that out and extend that out to um, different organizations, different enterprises to give that speed and access and utility? And that's the journey that we're on at the moment. But in relation to building that network, that network being operational uh, and capable of doing that, you know, we've worked um, hand in hand with Microsoft for the last two years. Um, we've had, you know, their technologists have been heavily involved both in Europe and Redmond um, as, as partners. Um, they're not equity holders or anything like that. You know, they send us a big bill for a zero every month, but um, which we pay. But to basically test out this technology. And ironically, if we had this white piece of paper moment three years ago, it wouldn't have worked because we couldn't, the, the way that the Azure cloud, you know, we built a private cloud within the Azure cloud. You know, to do that, you couldn't have done that. You couldn't have, heard, you know, the engineering capacity and capabilities didn't exist. And so it's only now that you can start to deliver this change to the core. And what the change to the core does is delivers transformation down into the marketplace. 
Interesting. So essentially what you're saying is um, a complete tangential technology, which is uh, cloud, really having a better enablement layer there. Uh, uh, since the cloud, for folks that don't know, from, from hypervisors all the way to microservices over the course of the last five years, uh, uh, the infrastructure has been evolving quite rapidly. And I would actually uh, 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 say a testament to that, like a lot of a lot of our work that's been done today also is because cloud's turning into code uh, uh, and you can really isolate and privatize instances of cloud a whole lot better. And it seems like what you're saying here, Nick, is a big piece of propelling this forward now is that you can deploy uh, um, your own private cloud inside Azure um, and then kind of like do all the liquidity swaps and exchanges with all the partners um, that are connected to your infrastructure. Yep, and we can deploy that to a bank in 30 minutes. Well, wow. and I would also suspect like um, this inherently reduces the amount of exceptions and errors that happen because mostly you're kind of negotiating everything in real time. What it's doing is changing the way correspondent banking works. You're taking you're not taking the middleman out, but you're moving the responsibilities to the middleman, um, so that effectively by checking the liquidity uh, either end, which is held in the central bank, you're getting absolute truth of transactional integrity. That's the difference. All right. So you know if the liquidity exists and the transaction can be blocked, yeah, that's good. It's immutable. Um, and you know we've got this great thing. I haven't yet put it on my business card because I can't find anybody to print it. Um, but we are, end up being the auditor of bilateral liquidity, uh, and that's what the, how the regulators look at us because effectively we're looking at you know the Federal Reserve cannot look at the Bank of England or the ECB. You know, it's just you know that's that's not allowed. We can because on the consent of the commercial banks, and we've had no commercial banks say no to this, all right, because the transparency and the benefits that this accrues to them are significant, all right? Um, effectively, what it allows us to do is to make sure that movement of funds, which are being swapped from an ownership perspective in the Federal Reserve or the Bank of England, the ECB, are mirrored, auditable, and verifiable in real time. And it also works every day of the week. So we decided not to have, you know, weekends off or public holidays or bank holidays or, you know, President's Day. I think you're all out celebrating that the other day. But anyway, whatever. <laughs> I tell you, I was with Nick all the way up until he said printing business cards. That's where he kind of lost me. I didn't, I didn't well, know we, we were still. I'll find one and I'll mail one. We still use mail. And stamp <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally teasing. I, I think that's, that's all really fascinating. And, and that's the innovation that's going to be needed to push payments and banking and all these things forward. I think as far as what's kind of mass, you know, widely available today, what we found is, you know, you really have to have a combination today without taking advantage of massive computing power. You have to have a combination of innovative technology, but you also have to start thinking about innovative process, right? Workflow management, and then also just liquidity, right? Just solving for it with good old fashioned cash. And so for us, what we've kind of done up until this point is, you know, when we first started, it took a really long time. And this was just because we needed to learn how to move money, but it took when, when I first launched GigWage, it would take seven business days to get uh, someone their money, which I'm embarrassed to say to this day. Uh, and then as we grew and evolved, you know, the kind of standard two-day ACH became pretty normal for us. And then we ran into the weekends and the holidays. And so now people could be waiting three or four days to get their money. Low to middle income earners in the gig economy, we just found that this was unacceptable, right? Uber, DoorDash, these people had kind of taught people that they could not only find a job, find work, get and get paid that same day. And so how would we enable that and bring it to the rest of the world? Then we started understanding like, and this is where the process innovation comes in, right? We started understanding like how money actually moves, two-legged transactions. 
okay, what, what's actually happening in this first leg of the transaction? Then we realized we could expose that. And so we just innovated around process until we kind of hit a wall of like, okay, we can do same day ACH. It's still not quite instant. Uh, and then we, you know, that's where we had to kind of get involved with interchange. And so you could trigger a payment and people could get paid instantly via MasterCard uh, or Visa networks, right? Um, but even then there's a limit, right? Because our customers, they can't send the money if they don't have the money, right? And so then we've bubbled up and started looking into the AR. And so what you're talking about, this computing power and where technology should be is, is vitally important because it causes a lot of burden on the entrepreneurs to innovate around, again, processes versus just having the technology at your disposal. And I think as the technology becomes more widely available, then we'll really see who the innovators are because, you know, again, in my opinion, the payment rails just become table stakes, instant payments, real-time payments, you know, five, 10 years, that's just table stakes and it'll just be widely available. So then where's the innovation, which is what's super interesting to me. Yeah, no, Craig, I completely agree. And and I think on that point, like the customer expectation is absolutely there and you're having to find all of these ways kind of around it. But also the there was a couple of things that Nick said that stuck with me, like um, we didn't unpack credit risk and settlement risk, but I like to think of them of um, can I afford to pay and and will I get paid? Um, it's it's will, will I end up getting money at the end of the day? So complicated terms for things that we can all understand. I did some work, am I going to get paid or I need to pay somebody, have I got enough money in the account? Which actually, when you uh, extrapolate that up to banks' amount of money and the, the, what they're sending between each other becomes very, very important. And of course, back in the day with the legacy uh, kind of like sending checks all around the country, uh, like you didn't know if somebody had the money there. You just couldn't see into their account. Whereas technology now allows for that, but the infrastructure and the rails really don't give us that ability uh, to, to see into them. And so what Nick building and others um, like Aurum are trying to do some predictive stuff that I think is really, really interesting. There's a whole bunch of people trying to attack this problem from different spaces. Nick, you wanted to jump in there? I'll just make a little observation for Craig's benefit, and that is that whilst he may not have business cards in America, they had a lot of checks. <laughs> we don't have many checks of now. They've got a ways. We just need to sort of stop continents, mate, and we can sort this out. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm with it. <laughs> Come join us in Europe. Yeah, we got we got um, faster payments near real-time payments. It's, it's great. But it doesn't solve everything, you know? I've got a colleague who's a director of one of the U.S. banks, and he has to pay his rent by getting a branch in um, California to cut a check and mail it. Mm. One of the things we've pushed back on, we and, and we, you know, we could – the, the capabilities there, but, you know, people want to be able to do checks here in the U S and we just kind of, we've just said, that's just, we just can't, I can't break myself to do it. <laughs> Greg, do you think that, um, that, I mean, in, in Europe, I mean, there's a whole stuff going on currently in the UK, you know, as, as we speak, it'll be on the news in about an hour's time here about the fact that pandemics, but basically, you know, seeing the end of cash and cash is disappearing, you know, U S has always been a, a very, very cash centric um, culture, do you see that being hammered because of the pandemic? Yeah, I think I, I think it's uh, it's inevitable that we'll be a cashless society. I just truly believe that uh, people overestimate how long that type of entrenched <laughs> type of transaction will take to to get rid of. And so, I don't think it's something to be. Uh, I think we should continue to push, and I think there's benefits for it. I think the pandemic is definitely accelerating it. But again, there is a lot of cash in the ecosystem. And people depend on it for a lot of different reasons. And sometimes it's literally just a psychology thing of they want the money in their hands. And it's going to take a while for people to get out of that mindset. Again, 
especially when you're thinking about a low to middle income earner. Maybe they're trying to keep their money off the books for a number of different reasons, whether it's a small business or an individual. And so cash will be around for a while. But on the upper ends of it, the pandemic is definitely driving in a, an acceleration of a cashless economy. The interesting thing here is like um, over the course of the pandemic, Synapse added like two different cash options in its network. Um, and the whole reason for that is we actually saw cash stay by and large undisrupted. Like uh, uh, obviously when shelter in place uh, uh, was in effect, uh, you saw like a decline in cash transactions. But as soon as that thing lifted, uh, cash popped back to normal. Same with ATM activity. Uh, and like along with checks, I think cash is another interesting thing that people have a strong affinity to, to Craig's point. Like right now, it's here to stay. Yeah, I think there's it, there's always going to be that need and that use for it. Um, and then different regulators will try and protect it for different reasons. I mean, we've seen, uh, I think it's Sweden that and with the Riks Bank has you know, got less than 4% cash use. And, and there are some countries where, like India where they're trying to demonetize actively. But also you have a, a national identity system that is widely used and you have um, payments rails that are digital in real time. So that's, that's like a, a completely different scenario to where the US is at the moment where you don't have the digital identity system. And in, in the UK, you definitely don't as well, but you do have that in other markets. So um, Nick, I'm interested in your views on where the regulators are on all of this stuff, because you have a uniquely global perspective, because I guess the answer is different depending on which geo you're looking at. But is regulation the answer here, or is are innovators always just going to have to find their way around it? I think, I think regulatory support for change is essential. Um, and, you know, I've been very fortunate through, you know, all the businesses I've founded to have had, you know, great interaction with the regulator. That doesn't mean they say yes to everything, and nor should they, and doesn't mean they say no to everything, and the same applies. Um, but if you're honest and you're transparent, you're trying to create a change which is a benefit, which doesn't create a risk, normally you'll find that they, st they stand behind you. You know, what we're trying to do with, you know, you imagine going into talking to the Federal Reserve Bank and saying, you know, we're creating synthetic ledgers against the reserve balances, which are, you know, the major banks in this country operates. You know, there's a, there's a Marine outside with a machine gun and you don't know whether you're going to meet him on the way out. It's one of those meetings. Um, but there is a real understanding that things have to change, um, but a requirement that that change is done progressively and safely. Um, and so, you know, if, if anybody is, is coming up with, you know, a new product or a new service, you know, great for them, 10 out of 10, um, please engage with the regulator sooner rather than later. Um, they're on your side. They're not against you unless you're trying to do something which is completely stupid. And if you are and they tell you that, then you, they're probably right. It's interesting, Sake. I'd love your view on this as well. The the mood music in the the financial regulators in the U.S. seems to have really changed in the last three or four years, maybe even more, to where uh, it, it seemed to be a case of kind of the regulations are what they are, and the rules are the rules. The private sector will figure it out. But now the the OCC has a fintech lab, and the SEC is actively engaging. Uh, FinCEN really does a, lo a lot of work proactively with fintechs. Do you think that there's an opportunity? For for people to kind of work directly with them if they're trying to do something innovative? And how much do you think that's shaping the future of what's happening with payments? I think it really depends. Um, I think there's been definitely a change in the mood for becoming more approachable to fintechs. I think uh, that has been a concerted thought through effort across most branches of regulations in the US. Um, now, it makes 
chance of sense for someone like Nick to engage the regulator is quite early, but it doesn't make a big chance of sense for uh, Greg to do the same. And, and the whole reason of that is like fintech uh, uh, is not a monolith, right? Like in some cases, either you're trying to build a completely new payment protocol, a completely new banking infrastructure, exchange of information in a new way. And I think those things probably require some proactive outreach and counsel. While in other cases, your primary focus is pretty much the stuff we talked about in our first episode. There have been a lot of services that have been available to the richer population, but not to the rest of the world. And let's democratize this. Uh, When there's a push for democratization, you're kind of working through the existing rules to begin with, right? Like uh, uh, GigWage is using ACH interchange ATMs, very standard protocols and practices. Um, uh, I think I wouldn't I wouldn't say that they should not talk to regulators if they want to, but I would also advise not to wait for them to be able to get going because uh, um, the risk over there of you doing something that's odd is quite low. While I think there's proactive outreach really needed for a new payments protocol to begin with. And and, and the attitude has shifted for sure. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that in that, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, gig workers should be able to just show up, go to work, get paid and a number of other things, just like traditional W-2 employees have always been able to do, right? And so to St. Keith's point, you're talking about how do we democratize access to getting your money for free and just being able to focus on work. And then, you know, for us, even things like we, we get outside of payments and we get into different types of transactions around insurance and portable benefits and all of those things. And so we spend our time from a regulation perspective, more so focused on the broader gig economy, classification issues like that. From a payments perspective, these people have just not been able to get their money <laughs> inexpensively and where they want it. And so that's the, the level of innovation we're bringing. But we do pay attention up market, right, into kind of what's happening and, and how fintech is being perceived, right? Because as we continue to grow and scale, those things do become more and more important. But yeah, early on, we're just getting out to the market. And I I like the way St. Keith said it is like, we're just democratizing, getting these people what they should already have anyway, right? There's a a network up called the Global Financial Innovation Network, all right, Uh, which is a grand sounding title. And if I tell you that's run by the global regulators, and it's designed to create open sandbox and movement of technology between different markets, uh, I don't know whether you've you've heard of it or seen of it yet, um, but it is a major initiative um, that is designed to embrace and encourage fintech development. And you know, just to remind you, in case you thought I missaid it, it's run by the global regulators. Yeah, I, I like that perspective as well. Like, there's an active outreach, but I, I, Sankit's point is depending where you are on the on your journey. Like, it, you can kind of abstract some of those challenges a little bit, and uh, I think it kind of really goes back to Durban Amendment and everything that happened there, Sankit, with kind of like some of the U.S. banks really looking at how can they partner up into the fintech ecosystem and really wrap some of their compliance wrappers around what what innovators are really starting to do. And I think Synapse has been at the forefront of really figuring out how you work with that and technology to to kind of um, build those guardrails more from a tech perspective that gets everybody comfortable. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. I think you can codify governance, like by and large. There's like a strong belief in there. Um, we think that is absolutely true. There are aspects of this that you can get started on today, right? If you want to open up a deposit account for anyone in the US, uh, uh, resident or alien, easy. 
and you can work through that. And there's enough precedent and governance written that you can just codify it. But then there are, there are complicated cases where if you want to expose the deposit infrastructure to uh, undocumented people, that requires some more work with the regulators. Um, uh, if you want to open up the deposit infrastructure in the U.S. to folks in Brazil, Venezuela, uh, where the inflation rates are high, uh, that requires some conversation and work with the regulators. Mm -hmm. But the intention here is, like, I think any technology person looking into finance would say governance needs to be thought of as like code, uh, putting in the right guardrails in your system to begin with. Mm, that's interesting. Building those guardrails directly into it. Um, Craig, I'm interested in your perspective on all of that because uh, you know payments needs to get continued to be disrupted. Um, the guardrails are kind of there and understood. Um, but do you think that um, the payments rails can keep up with the expectation of customers um, over the next three to five years? And and what do you think is going to be we're going to start to see as as changes? Yeah, I, think, I, I honestly do. Right. You know, you look at, again, just very traditionally, you look at interchange, you look at, you know, what's happening with ACH on kind of real time payments, RTP. I think the instantaneous payment, again, I think this becomes table stakes. I think what's super exciting about it, though, is the data that we're starting to be able to collect around the payments happening on those rails and that real time data on like prior to the payment being initiated prior to the payment being received, post the payment, and then in like in flight, right? And I think that data becomes really interesting in what you do with that data and then how it's applied to unique, you know, genres and niches of businesses, right? And so I, I'm not, again, the speed of the payment, which is when we talk about, will it be able to keep up with society and the consumer, right? All it is, we're talking about instant gratification as millennials become the largest generation in today's workforce. Gen Z is now becoming of adult age. It's about instantaneous gratification. Earlier in the podcast, and Keith talked about, you know, real-time messaging, right? And I think, you know, people have talked about the ability to quickly send a photo or, you know, like you said, I can see that a message is sending, right? Even when my signal's a little bit delayed, I know in real time that, uh-oh, this might not happen and it failed. Or, you know, I, I think that data is what's going to be super interesting. Uh, but I'm, I'm extremely confident that payments will be able to keep up with the pace of society. Craig, in your business model, how much of the future is about value added? Because, you know, you've, you've, you're dealing with a, a market, many of them perhaps don't have credit ratings and all the rest of it, where the data that you're accruing and growing on that could be hugely valuable. It's massive. We, um, yeah, when we, when we, there's a lot of different ways to talk about our, our grand vision. Uh, but the most, simplistic and broad way to talk about it is to build the bank for the gig economy. We'll bank the gig economy, we'll finance the future of work. And so all of the data that we have for the businesses and platforms that pay them, as well as the workers that receive it, as they go out and spend, consumer spending habits, you know, how much they're getting paid, how much these companies are earning, uh, we're already starting to see a, you know, a, a, a unique opportunity to finance and underwrite a lot of this stuff that you know, traditionally other banks or people may not have done just because of the access and insight to the data. And then we start to think about like, you know, again, other financial service products, tax products, uh, life insurance products, FSA, HSA, these things that gig workers haven't had access to, we can underwrite and feel really strong about these things just because of the data we have. 
I love it. The data about the payment is probably more valuable than the payment. I think I can't remember who that's attributed to originally. I think it was a former CEO of City, maybe in the 80s. Um, but actually, we're now starting to see that come to fruition. Guys, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. We've only got a couple of minutes. So in, in, in closing, I just want to go around you guys and sort of say, what are you hopeful for um, with payments innovation? What, what really uh, excites you? Um, I'll start with Nick and we'll, we'll go around the horn. Um, I'm really excited about by the uh, technology that can bolt into the infrastructure we're now delivering to the commercial banks. Uh, we can't do that. It's impossible. We can only go to the ecosystem that we operate in. And we're developing containers which banks can deploy to fintechs in due course. And I think it's going to be really exciting, some of the innovations that occur there. Uh, watch this space. Uh, Craig, how about you? Yeah, for me, it's less about the technology and, and how the technology can impact the world, right? And I think for us, you know, our purpose is economic empowerment. And I think as this payment technology and banking technology improves, it can really serve as an on-ramp for more inclusivity. It can really do a lot to decrease, you know, a lot of the inequalities that are happening in the economy. And I think as technology has become more accessible, now that payments can kind of follow on top of that and also become more accessible, I think it can give people a better chance at a better quality of life. And I think that's the true power of innovating technology and payments. Creating an opportunity here. Uh, Sanket? Yeah, I think the most hopeful thing here is uh, about threefold. So the first thing is uh, really bringing in the bi-directional messaging protocols that you every step of the way know exactly where the payment is. Uh, quite hopeful that that's also going to happen in the U.S. Um, uh, Fed now and real-time ACH are like good early indicators of that. Uh, the second piece, uh, uh, pretty much to next point, like how can we think of this not as an inside one country type matter, but more so a global payment matter. Um, and there's been some really good early indicators of that also being the case. Um, so over the course of the next five years, by and large, like two things looking forward to uh, better reliable messaging protocols that give you uh, information of the payment every step of the way. And by definition also ends up increasing the speed of it. And second, the ubiquity and the global nature of payments. So I think, I think those two are the things we can look forward to over the course of the next five years. My goodness, there's a lot to look forward to. Uh, if we can change all of that stuff, we'll be in really good shape. And I'm so glad to have uh, entrepreneurs like yourselves out there building this stuff and pushing pushing what's forward. The world needs you. So thank you so much. Um, that concludes this episode of Under the Hood. Next week, we'll be lifting the lid on banking licenses. What does it mean to have one and how not having a license on your own isn't the drawback it used to be, um, and quite the opposite in many cases. We hope you can join us for that discussion. Uh, Sankit, um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I guess, uh, where can people find out more about you and what you're up to at Synapse? They can go to our website, synapsefy.com, or use the same handle, synapsefy, on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Beautiful. Uh, Nick, how about you? Uh, same answer, I'm afraid. It's go to our websites, uh, either rtgs.com or rtgs.global, um, or find me on LinkedIn. Thank you so much. And Craig? Yeah, GigWage everywhere, right? GigWage.com, at GigWage on all social platforms. And if you do want to Google me or look me up, it's, make sure you add the J, Craig J. Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> it's so important. It's like Homer J. Man, Simpson, I'm right? We'll never, never forget that. 
<laughs> it's crucial. It makes all the difference. Uh, you can find me on social at SY Taylor on Twitter or on LinkedIn. And of course, you can find 11FS at 11FS.com. Uh, if you like this podcast, remember to subscribe to get all the latest episodes as soon as they're released. And tell your friends and everybody you know about it to pass the pod along. Uh, find out more about the show uh, on 11FS and Synapse social platforms. We'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and goodbye for now. Thank you.